You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball, this is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game. Okay, let me tell you a story. This kid was born in Toronto, and he fell in love with math. He liked it a lot, got passionate about it, went to college to major in actuarial science. Actuarial science is the discipline that applies mathematical and statistical methods to the systematic observation of natural events to assess the risks of events occurring and help formulate policies that minimize this risk and its financial impact on companies and clients. Okay, yeah, not for me, but there's something for everybody, right? So while this Canadian kid is in college at Western University in London, Ontario, prepping for a life assessing risks with math skills, he starts volunteering at the school radio station got a great voice baritone speaking voice he loves sports soon he's got a talk show and they need somebody to do play-by-play of the university of western ontario basketball team he does them he digs it thinks he may have found a fun hobby he graduates and he's an actuary and it's not fun shocking i know six months into it He grabs his old cassette tapes of the college radio work, sends them to radio stations all over Ontario. Somebody bites, and then he's a working radio guy in Toronto. A couple years later, an executive at ESPN in New England accidentally turns the radio dial too far and finds our hero's radio show in Toronto. He offers him a job at ESPN Radio in 1993. A career blooms way beyond the wildest imagination of our guest on the PBP Voices of Baseball today. Dan Shulman. I found Dan as the voice of Sunday Night Baseball, the game of the week. He worked with Joe Morgan and others. That's got to be daunting and exciting. National guy for game of the week. And I loved hearing Dan do the World Series on the radio. What a great part of that gig. That job is now done by friend of the podcast and future guest John Boog Shambi because Dan went back to Toronto voluntarily. He still does college hoops for ESPN, but he left national baseball for local. He chose happiness. His son, Ben Shulman, is part of the broadcast crew with the Blue Jays as well. The fourth wheel, as his Twitter account says. But in this podcast, you'll hear some of the best, most useful stuff about the process of doing play-by-play from Dan Shulman. And then the stories about his favorite ballgame calls are awesome towards the end. The highlights weaved in beautifully once again by our producer, Ryan Porth. We start, though, talking with Dan Shulman about his place in the annals of baseball broadcast history. You are the voice of baseball for a large swath of fans who came up um, in terms of their own interest with you as the man for the game of the week, the game of the week on, on ESPN on Sunday nights. And I was thinking about that because that's a pretty short list, you know, that you are a part of that lineage. For me personally, the first team that I think of is Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek and then Scully and Costas doing NBC games. I guess a little bit before that is Al Michaels and doing Monday Night Baseball, Keith Jackson and the former pitcher Don Drysdale as a play-by-play guy. But um, I, I, I would hope that you feel sort of the magnitude of that because it's a pretty rare thing to be on that list. Uh, well, I appreciate that. It, it's, um, it, you know, I replaced uh, John Miller. So the magnitude of that was quite overwhelming for me at the time. You know, you mentioned some historic broadcasters and John Miller certainly belongs right in that group as well. One of the best, one of the very best who's ever done it. So, uh, you know, I started at ESPN in 1995 and kind of did West Coast Wednesday games, what we called B-nets. So if the Dodgers were playing the Giants, 
Um, that game would be blacked out in L.A. and San Francisco. So they might also do, say, Seattle and Oakland. And that game would only go to L.A. and San Francisco. And that's where I started was doing B-Nets. But it was a wonderful opportunity. Um, and over the years, my opportunities grew when I went to Wednesday night baseball and then to Monday night baseball, you know, never really knowing where it would go and never really thinking about where it would go. It's just a wonderful opportunity for me. Uh, but when I got offered Sunday night baseball, you know, replacing John Miller is one of the three or four times in my life where I went, where I broke into a cold sweat right away, even though I had been doing it for a number of years. I, I had a friend call me like the week of my first Sunday night baseball game, which was 2011 and say to me, you know, this is kind of like replacing Cal Ripken, don't you? And I said, you're not really helping me right now. Like, this is not doing me any good. Um, I don't really think of myself. I appreciate what you say, Matt, but I don't really think of myself in those terms. I'm much more of a, um, uh, what's, what's my job today? Go do my job, go back home. I, I just kind of keep it simple, and I try not to get into big picture or, um, it, you know, in, in, in any kind of uh, broad thoughts like that. But I am very honored. You know, I'm a Canadian kid without a broadcasting degree. And, and so I'm very honored um, to have been thought of that way by ESPN. And to I did baseball at ESPN for 28 years uh, between TV and radio. I got a chance to do the World Series on radio a dozen times. So it's funny because I, um, as you know, I'm from Toronto. I live in Toronto. I, I'm now doing the Blue Jays again at, uh, as I'm kind of getting towards the back end of my career. And some people in Canada have no idea I ever worked for ESPN in my life, have, had never heard of me, didn't know who I was, have never seen me do a college basketball game, don't know I did ESPN Sunday Night Baseball or anything like that. And other people are intimately aware of it. So it's kind of funny. I, I'm, um, there's just one of me, but like depending on who you are and what sports you follow, it, people have a very different uh, perception or understanding of what I've done. But um, I, I am I, I do feel very honored and privileged to have gotten the opportunities um, that ESPN gave me um, because it was way, way, way beyond anything that I ever dreamed of when I got into this career. I had to look it up while you answered. Ryan Miner replaced Cal Ripken because my first thought was, <laughs> was Doug DeSenseis who replaced Brooks Robinson and did pretty well for himself. Um, and Babe Dahlgren replaced Lou Gehrig, but I didn't know Ryan Miner. So it, you had, you've had a better run than Ryan Miner. To be fair. Well, if it's the same Ryan Miner, and I think it is, he was an outstanding basketball player at Oklahoma. And I think I did some of his basketball games there. Um, but yeah, re replacing a Cal Ripken or a John Miller uh, is not the easiest thing to do. I mean, John and Joe Morgan did it for 21 years. They were wow. Sunday night baseball. They were the first people to do Sunday night baseball. And then uh, ESPN, for whatever reason, decided they wanted to make a change. And in 2011, they hired me and I did it for seven years. It was a little bit different for me. I had six different partners or sets of partners over the seven years. And I, you know, I wish there had been a little bit more consistency uh, over that time, but um, it is what it is. You know, things change. We had like ex managers who came in and joined us and were great, but then they got another managerial opportunity. So they didn't stick Frank around. Very long. You, had Frank, you had Francona the year between Red Sox and Cleveland. I had kind of forgotten yes. that year existed. So, so you're breaking yes. somebody in. What's it like to break in maybe the most brilliant manager in the game today, but to help break him in as a broadcaster? What's that like? I broke in a lot of people. So 2011, my first year, I think was Bobby Valentine and Oral Hershiser. And then 11 was the year it ended poorly for Boston. And Tito, as everybody calls Francona, was let go or not renewed, whatever, at the end of the year. And that's when Bobby Valentine, I think, went back to Boston and Tito came to Sunday Night Baseball. So um, Terry Francona became that year and still is an extremely close friend of mine. He is one of the most unbelievable, amazing human beings you've ever met. And if you don't believe me, ask anybody else who's ever met him. He's he's great. Um it's funny because, like you said, he'd never done TV. I mean, a brilliant baseball mind, an unbelievably popular, well-connected, admired, well-liked person. But he didn't know the first thing about TV. But we just said to him, Tito, you just be you. Just just be like, don't swear on the air. But other than that, just be you. And every single week, like you could have done like a Seinfeld show on, on that year because he is so damn funny. And funny things just happen to him because of him, around him. Um, and it was great. It, it was absolutely wonderful working with him. He was, he was there just one year. We knew he'd only be there one year. Like, you know, you're Terry Francona. Somebody's going to hire you away. 
Um, but I'll have memories my entire life of, uh, of that season. So uh, I've heard you describe yourself as a point guard uh, in the broadcast booth. And obviously yeah. you're part of three person booths, but you know, so, so, so how do you set up? Were you, were you more of a, of a Rajon Rondo who doesn't shoot his shots with certain people? It's a lot of, we, we had Derek Rose in Chicago. So sometimes the point guard right. scores a lot a, a, as right. well. Like, do you adjust your point guard skills depending on who the analyst is? I do. I tend to think of myself as more of a pass first point guard. And one of my producers at ESPN many, many years ago, Tom Archer said to me, he, I guess I had made the analogy or he and I were, were having the conversation. So I'll explain the analogy first and then I'll get into the specifics. The analogy that I, the, the reason I use that analogy is, you know, the point guard generally starts to play with the ball, but it's his job to move the ball around and get somebody a good shot. So, you know, each little chunk of time, generally I'm the one who gets us going, but I could be throwing to the analyst or the other analyst or the reporter or the studio, or they're putting up a replay or a graphic or a video element. And it's my job to move the ball around and, and keep everything flowing. So I remember when Tom Archer said to me, he said, you're not really Allen Iverson. You're more Steve Nash. And um, as a, don't make it all about myself kind of guy. And as a Canadian, like Steve Nash, I really like that an analogy. I enjoyed it. So, you know, when he said to me, you're like a, a Steve Nash type of play-by-play -play guy, that, that felt pretty good. And, and obviously, I've remembered it all these years later. So, but yes, you do have to adjust. Um, you know, working with uh, Dick Vitale is different than working with anybody else. Um, and it, if I try to do the same things with Jay Billis, I do with Dick Vitale or vice versa, it's not going to work. And, and even in baseball, I mean, I've worked with so many wonderful people over the years. I always felt it was my job to adjust to their style and to their strengths and weaknesses. Um, now sure. over time, for, for instance, like Buck Martinez, who I work with in Toronto, and that's who I broke in with. And I worked with him for six years at the beginning of my career. And now we're working uh, together again, like 15, 20 years later. Uh, I mean, he and I could complete each other's sentences and thoughts without breaking a sweat. It would be the easiest thing in the world. So that takes no effort because uh, I know him inside out and he knows me inside out. Um, but when you do have different people all the time, you do have to make adjustments. And uh, I'm sure the analyst, you know, tries to adjust to me a little bit. They get to know my cadence or my pauses or things like that. And I will admit to once in a blue moon, we call it giving them the Heisman, you know, putting up my hand just for a second and saying, just give me two more seconds here. I got one more thing. Or it could even be let the let the natural sound play out here. Let the crowd go. Don't jump in yet. Like I'm big on a big home run in a home ballpark you know, let the guy round the bases, high five his teammates at the plate. There's lots of time. Uh, I, I think, you know, seeing the great pictures our director puts up and and listening to the crowd go crazy, that's good television. That, that gets the hair on the back of your neck standing up. So, again, back to the point guard thing, you know, sometimes you shoot, sometimes you pass. You, it's kind of a, a possession by possession thing. So I'm thinking there's a great moment in uh... – the HBO series about the Lakers that has Chick Hearn holding up the hand to Pat Riley. Pat, you know, you know, when you see my fist like this, you yeah. know, like so every, every once in a while, um, do you find yourself uh, analyzing a little more or using some of the knowledge that you've gotten through the years or, or do you still try to um, be the, what happened and let Buck be the, why it happened? I think I analyze more in baseball than I do in basketball. First of all, there's more time in baseball. And I, I mean, I'm, I like to feel I'm extremely comfortable in both sports, but I think I've got a, a, a touch more of a handle on, on baseball than I do on basketball. Um, especially when you, since I'm no longer with the ESPN and now I'm doing the Blue Jays and I see them every day, you know, I know their mannerisms and tendencies and strengths and weaknesses inside out. And a little thing, like if Whit Merrifield is going to decoy a runner who, who's coming into second base to make him think there's a throw coming so he should slide when in reality the ball was popped up and he's just trying to get him to slide so he can double him off, things like that. If a guy takes a swing that's a little bit out of the ordinary, I can tell most of the time because I know what that guy's swing looks like. So I will analyze a little bit, but even if I do, it's with the intent of then getting it back to the analyst and having him 
confirm or expand upon or deny or or something like that. I, I, I'm not out there. I'm never out there trying to be a one man broadcast. But, you know, every now and again, I might see something that that the analyst, even though they're much more experienced or former players or whatever, um, if I feel confident in it, I, I will jump in there a little bit. But it's all in the spirit of just, you know, getting a good conversation going. I was asked the other day um, when I do my innings and I've done 12 total major league regular season play-by-play innings stretched out over 12 games over three years, which I think you would admit is a great way to get into the business, right? (laughs) Easy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. In your, in your fifties. But I, I was asked the other day, do I look at the monitor or at the field? And I wonder how you handle that choice and if it has evolved for you, as scoreboards have evolved and show more as, as as obviously monitors and telecasts have evolved as well. It's a great question. It's a question I get asked frequently and it's one I'm happy to answer because I think every play-by-play announcer probably does it differently. So I like knowing what the pitches are. Um, For example, Kevin Gosman's got an unbelievable splitter. Uh, If I'm just looking out from our booth down onto the field, we're a long way up. Can I tell if it's a fastball slider or splitter? Maybe by the swing, probably. But if they take the pitch, maybe not. Um, You know, to me, that whole pitcher-catcher relationship and trying to fool the hitter, that's the essence of the sport. So I do like uh, knowing what the pitches are. And again, it helps me get um, good topics, good stories uh, out of the analysts. So many of the analysts I've worked with happen to be catchers. And, you know, let's let them go right to their strength and talk about the pitches that are being called and that sort of thing. So generally, I will look at the monitor as the pitch is coming in. And then if the ball is put in play, I will look at the field. That's generally the way that I do it. It's gotten a little bit trickier because when you've got things like virtual signage behind the plate, there's a little bit of extra technology and especially on road games that can cause a delay. And it's not a huge delay. It might be a quarter of a second or a half a second. But if I'm looking at the monitor and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits the ball and there's a half second delay, by the time I look to left field to see where the ball is, the ball might have hit the wall already or the left fielder might have jumped and missed it already. So sometimes it's a bit of a delicate balance. And I'm sure other play-by-play announcers would feel the same way. Sometimes you've got to vary your plan just to see the ball live or as close to live as you can. So in general, I'm on the monitor to see the pitches and then on the field to see once the ball is put in play. But sometimes I'll go to the field a little bit more if there's too much of a delay on the monitor. Do you count pitches or do you trust a particular scoreboard or the monitor? You got options. I don't count pitches. I never count pitches. Um, I never count pitches, and I and, and when I do basketball games, I don't keep track of people's points. I, I don't pick up a pen in a, during a basketball game, never. Um, I, if I had to leave one thing at home for a basketball game, it would be a pen. Um, in, ba- in baseball, I'm scoring, like I have a scorebook, like everybody does, and I'm keeping notes and my little shorthand gibberish that only I can read, but I don't count pitches. I do have a number of windows open on my, uh, on my laptop at the time, One of them is an outstanding tab called MLB Research. That is for uh, in-game broadcasters, basically. Mm. And it's usually maybe a pitch behind, but it's very easy for me to track. You know, if it says the sixth pitch of the bat was a slider, and now I just saw another one that was a curveball or a changeup, whatever, it's pretty easy for me to, you know, figure out how many have been thrown in that at bat. Um, Like you said, the scoreboard at every ballpark keeps track of the total number of pitches that a pitcher has thrown, not that at bat, but the total number that he's thrown during a game. And if I'm on my game, the first thing I do when the game starts is remind myself, where is that? Like in Toronto, I know where everything is obviously, because that's my home ballpark. But if we go to play, you know, the White Sox or the Mariners or the twins, everything is different. And sometimes I forget. And I'm like in the third inning going, where are the pitches? And I'm looking around because it'll always have ball strikes pitches somewhere. But Uh, You know, when I started, I didn't have a computer. There were no laptops. There was no internet. The internet was not a thing when I started. So, you know, now anything you can find in a ballpark, you can probably find on your computer just as quickly. What other tabs do you have open? MLB Research, Baseball Reference, Baseball Savant, Fangraphs, 
Baseball Press, uh, which is a, a really useful one. Baseball Press has two uses for me. One is it's a good place to see when the lineups are uh, announced. You can get the lineup there. But then when the game starts, there's another tab called bullpen usage. And for example, for the Blue Jays, so uh, you and I are talking on Monday, it would go Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Thursday, like back five days or something like that. And it would show the pitches each reliever has thrown over the last five days. So for Jordan Romano, I could easily see 13-0-0-12-0 or something and have a very good sense of how much he's worked recently. So um, those five, uh, and then I'll just have like a sixth generic tab open um, if I want to Google anything or Wikipedia anything or go to MILB, if I want to check something on the minor leagues or something like that. So generally, it's six windows. My messages are open. My email is open. Um, we get a few research. That is just speaking from a Blue Jays point of view. We get a few little research materials before the game, internal things. Um, so those I download and I've got them open. I don't even know how to say it, but they're not, you know, they're not live internet windows. They've been, they've been, uh, downloaded. I've got four or five of those. And then I try to close everything else, but I just sit here on my, on my MacBook. Like if you stood behind me during a game, I think you'd be amazed. And, and I probably can't even imagine it because it's become second nature. Like how much switching around and clicking and I, I'm doing on my computer to get from, one place to the other. Like Nate Pearson comes in yesterday, throwing 100, 101, and I'll go to Baseball Savant, click on the game, because there's an excellent way to see how his velocity today compares to his season-long velocity. But that's something I might not do on another day if it's not of interest to me. So um, I've gotten a lot better at it the last two or three years. As all this technology came in, I was a little bit behind the times in terms of keeping up on everything. But I've made a, a conscious effort um, to try to do it. Um, you know, in, information is so important now, but I always said, you know, I'm trying to do it now. My, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, but I always said, I'm trying to do a game, a broadcast that appeals to my dad and appeals to my son. And those are two very different broadcasts sometimes. So you always have to try to strike that balance, but it's a challenging thing to do. Um, how early do you get to the ballpark? I, I, I have found that those hours as the as the ballpark is slowly coming to life and you see, you know, the vendors starting to mill around and you yeah. have that quiet to get everything you just described organized, which is so much. That's a, it, it seems to be a very special time. Yeah. So I'll give you a typical home game. Blue Jay home game starts at seven. I leave my house at two 30 and depending on traffic, I'm there three ish. If things go well, I like to be in the ballpark about three 15 and Toronto's also one of those cities. I'm sure Chicago's the same. If you wait an extra five minutes to leave your house, it might cost you a half an hour on the highway. So 2.30 is when I try to be out the door, get there just after 3. The Blue Jay Clubhouse opens to the media at 3.30. It's open 3.30 to 4.30. So if I get there, 3.05, 3.10, whatever, by that time, the lineup has usually been emailed to us, and it's not for publication, but they send it to... Uh, kind of the game announcers a little bit early just to give us some help with our scorecard because it takes us some time, or at least I can see the lineup. Um, go down to the clubhouse shortly after it opens at 3.30, and I, um, I, I use notes on my computer a lot, and I've got one that's just called Stories to Get, and I just keep a running file. If, if Kevin Kiermeyer did something unusual or interesting in the game before – I'll just say, ask Kiermeyer about the fifth inning play, and I'll remind myself of it as I get to the ballpark, go down to the clubhouse, and just try to find the guys I'm trying to find. I might have a big list or a little list. Um, the Blue Jay manager, John Schneider, does his media availability for a home game at 4 o'clock. So I do 20, 30 minutes trying to find players or coaches, whatever I need, go into the manager's office at 4. That usually takes 15 minutes, 4.15 and then I might go out on the field and get more around the cage. I might go over to the visiting side if there's something I'm looking for. But usually by 4.30, 4.45, I'm back up in the booth. And that's when I do my scorecard, uh, which probably front to back takes me 45 minutes to an hour to put together. Um, I run down to media dining and grab, uh, grab whatever they're serving to go, bring it back to the booth normally, um, sit in the booth. Uh, and about six o'clock, getting back to the game notes, I, I might not have done the game notes yet. So I do the game notes around six o'clock. We have um, a graphics meeting, if you want to call it that. So Buck and I are 
in the booth and looking at our monitors and our producer, Doug Walton is down in the truck and he'll show us all the video elements, all the graphics that we're thinking of, go over the storylines for the day, which he's done in an email he sent out in the morning, but this just kind of, you know, confirms it. We all get to see the graphics, see if there are any typos or mistakes or anything. Mm -hmm. And then at about six 15, we tape our open. We normally tape our open. If we do it in one take, we're done by six 17. If not, we do it again. Um, and then, you know, it's 6.20-ish, whatever. And so for the last half an hour, finish the game notes, uh, maybe grab a, you know, grab a Diet Coke or a coffee if one is handy. Might visit with the opposing announcers a little bit, trade some stories, um, th that kind of thing. Just kind of tie up loose ends in the last half an hour before a game starts. It's a beautiful description of the process. And I'm sure a lot of young broadcasters have been finding the podcast and kind of learning from it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you have an appreciation um, for this feeling of being able to be embedded with a team once again, as opposed to the national yeah. lifestyle? Because it's like you're living with a rock band and covering them for Rolling Stone, you know? So right. it's something like it's, it's, yeah, it's very different. And I have an appreciation for both, to be honest with you. So, you know, if you had asked 26-year-old me, what are your dreams? I don't know how I would have answered that question. But both of them are wonderful. So as I said, I was part of ESPN's baseball crew for 28 years, and I'm, I'm still doing college basketball for them, which I've done for the last 28 years. And, you know, there's nothing like, whether it's Giants, Dodgers, or Duke Carolina, or whatever it is, going in and doing the game that you know people all around the country are going, wow, this is the game I want to watch. That, that's a pretty cool feeling. There is a different feeling when you are with a team all the time. You develop relationships, they trust you. You can get access to whoever you want. Your research is different. Like if you called me, at, if somebody was filling in for me on the Blue Jays game and you called me at 6.30 and said, they're sick, you've got to do the game, I could do the game. Could I go do a White Sox Twins game on half an hour's notice? I mean, I could, but I, it'd be a bit more of a struggle. So, you know, being around a team every day, both on a personal and professional level is a bit of a different feeling. And then, you know, you compound that with the fact that I'm from Toronto and Jason Benetti and I have talked about this. Like there are only for argument's sake, 60 of these jobs in baseball, 30 TV, 30 radio play by play. How many of the 60 are actually calling games for the team from their own hometown? I don't know, 10, 15, 20. I, I don't know what the answer is. I haven't, I've thought about it, but I know I'm lucky. Um, if we have a guest in the booth from the 1985, you know, the first ever playoff team for the Blue Jays, you know, if Lloyd Mosby's in the booth. I know Lloyd Mosby. I was at that game. I know his history. I know his numbers from 1983, that sort of thing. That to me is both a real lucky bonus for me and it's fun. You know, I grew up in Toronto. I was at the first ever game in 1977. My dad took me to a million games. I took my boys to a million games. Um, so on that level, being embedded with a team, to use your term, and being embedded with a team that 
I know their history from day one, you know, not perfectly. There were many, many years I wasn't here where I was full-time ESPN baseball. And I, I don't claim to know those years as well as the years before and since. But, um, you know, to be part of this team and for the viewers to know I'm from Toronto, that I'm Canadian, that I was at the ballpark when they were at the ballpark, that that's, you know, that's not something you can quantify. There's no analytics on that, but it's something that I enjoy feeling. That's that's so great. Uh, two things. One, I remember when it was Bell Barfield and Mosby thinking to myself that maybe Silvestre Campusano, Glenn Allen Hill and Rob Ducey were going to be just wow. as good. And they were wow. at Syracuse. So That's pretty good. <laughs> you, you, you triggered my Blue Jays memories there. Um, yeah. With that as the backdrop, can you tell us about the layers that were going on for the famed Jose Batista bat flip game? Because you had family in the stands as well as doing the game, right? Okay, so you're a little bit familiar, obviously, with the backstory. So it, it's funny. This is another one of those weird ones. Nobody in Canada knows I did that game because I did it for ESPN radio. And obviously in Canada, you were either watching on national television or you were listening to the Blue Jays radio network. So I was doing, I was in Chicago, coincidentally enough. Um, I want to remember, I think the Cubs were playing the Cardinals in the playoffs that year. It was what it was. Um, you might remember better than me, maybe the Mets, maybe the Cubs were playing the Mets, whoever the Cubs were playing in the first round of the 2015 playoffs. It's the Cardinals and it's a very it's memorable series. That's when they passed them and then got the Mets and got spanked in the, in the NLCS. So you're right. Cubs Cardinals. Okay, so they, the Cubs, and, and I hope I'm not remembering this all wrong. The Cubs series, the division series ended, I want to say in four, but it ended a day before it ended the day before game five of the Blue Jays and Rangers. I was not doing the Blue Jays and Rangers. I was doing the Cubs and the Cardinals. And I'm, I get in a cab after the last game of the Cubs series, and I'm going back to our hotel um, in Chicago. And my boss at the time, John Martin, calls me, and he says, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, our series is over. I, I had bought tickets for the Blue Jay playoff games, and I was kind of sharing them with my sons and parents and whoever, whatever. And I said, well, I've got tickets. I'm going to go home. I'm going to boot one of my family members out of their seat, and I'm going to go to game five tomorrow between the Blue Jays and the Rangers. He said, can you do the game? And I said, what do you mean? Can I do the game? I said, where's Dave Fleming? Because Dave Fleming, great announcer, was on the series. And he said he got pulled off for a college football game on TV. I don't know why. I, I never knew. I didn't matter. He goes, can you do the game? I said, yeah, I can do the game. So the, the only game of that series I did was game five uh, between Toronto and Texas. I did it with Rick Sutcliffe, who had been on the whole series. And thankfully, you know, he had seen every pitch of that series. And that was great help to me. But again, I was in my own hometown in my own home ballpark. Although I hadn't returned to the Blue Jays at that point. I was not back doing Blue Jays games, but obviously I was a little bit, you know, more familiar with them than most teams. So I get home the next day at like noon and at 2.30, I'm at the ballpark getting ready to call a deciding playoff game. So seventh inning, I believe there's this crazy play where Russell Martin, the Blue Jay catcher, tries to throw the ball back to the mound and Shin Su Chu is not doing anything wrong. But Chu's bat is kind of out here. But, again, it's within the confines of the batter's box. Martin's throw hits the bat. The ball bounces into the infield. The Rangers score a run. And, I mean, the place goes ballistic. Like, I've never seen a place get angrier than that. As it turns out, the run should have scored. It's a live ball. It wasn't Chu's fault. But in the moment, a lot of people in the ballpark in Toronto didn't understand that. And, and, and I probably didn't understand it. In, in the immediate moment either, you know, as a few seconds, a couple minutes went on and, you know, we realized what had happened, but there, there is sometimes this pervasive feeling in Canada that the U S sports, the U S networks don't want a Canadian team to do well because it's not good for their business. So there, some people feel there's a bias against Canadian teams. I'm not among them, but, but some people up here do. So they start littering the field with everything you can, you know, Coke bottles and beer cans and, and it was bad. It was really, really bad. Um, so my parents who were in their seventies at the time were at the game with my two sons, two of my sons. And in that moment where all hell's breaking loose, I texted, I sent a group text to all of them. And I said, if they lose this game, do not leave your seats. I will come get you and take you out underground with me. I don't want you going to find your car. Like there could be a riot outside the ballpark. I was really nervous. You know, my dad at the time was... Yeah, he might have been 80, 81 years old. I didn't want them looking for their car. Like, what if they were, you know, what if it got really bad? 
So then 10 minutes later, Elvis Andrews makes a couple of errors and Jose Bautista hits the bat flip home run. And they take a, I think a six to three lead at the time. And I texted everybody and I said, it's okay. We're good. I'll see you at home. Everything's fine. <laughs> so, because once, once we knew they were going to win the game, we knew everything was going to be fine. But it is without question the most uh, emotionally charged sporting event I've ever been at. And I don't say that with pride because, again, I think the fans went overboard with their displeasure in the top half of the inning. But that moment where Bautista hit the home run, it's not something I think that people from a lot of other cities would be able to understand. The 1-1. Bautista drives it deep left field. Gone! The Blue Jays' dugout has erupted as they greet Bautista at the edge of the track. Suddenly it is 6-3 for Toronto. Unfortunately, there's more debris on the field, and that needs to stop. It was a release of emotion for Blue Jays fans, whose team had not been in the playoffs for 22 years before that year. It was such a release of emotion, uh, anger coming out, relief coming out, joy coming out, everything coming out at the same time that this team might actually win this game and win this series no, no matter what might be going against them. And, and uh, you know, again, having grown up in that city, I... I got it. And uh, it was it was cool. It's been cool sharing moments with family members who are big Blue Jays fans. That's been a big part of the fun. For me. You know, as you talk yeah. about that, that emotional charge and the anger that it was, um, did you feel that same anger among Cub fans when you're calling game six of the 2003 NLCS when Moises Alou yeah. tussles with the fan who I don't need to pile on in terms of naming it his game because yeah. Alex Gonzalez really should have held on to that double play ball and Dusty shouldn't have had Dave Veers working while uh, Jack McKeon at Dontrell Willis in relief. Uh, but that's a whole nother, whole nother <laughs> thing. Did you feel the same kind of group vitriol in that way? In the so crowd? here's what I remember. And it's it's many it's twelve years earlier, and again I don't have the you know the Chicago background like you do, or like I have the Toronto background. So I remember coming back to Chicago. Well, I think the Cubs were up three one, but still coming back to Chicago when they're up three two. And I remember being you know walking up the ramps to the broadcast booth at four in the afternoon or whatever, and you can see outside the ballpark in certain spots. And I looked out to Wrigleyville, and it was like a post game party at four o'clock in the afternoon, three hours before the game. And I remember thinking, wow, they, they think it's over. Like they think they've won. And, and, you know, again, being from Toronto, which means being a Maple Leafs fan, which means being a tortured soul, one should never think it's over until it's over with certain franchises. But it was, a, this is my memory. It was a party and it was a party. Was it the seventh inning or the eighth inning? The eighth inning, right? Eighth, I think, yeah. Eighth inning, right? It was three to one, I think, going. It doesn't matter. It was, it was three to one. And I remember it feeling like a rock concert until the moment the ball was hit down the line. And Alou and Steve Bartman came together, and we all know what happened. And again, the 3 2 pitch and a fly ball down the left field line, heading over near the wall in foul territory is Alou. He jumps, and a fan took it away from him. And Alou is livid. The ball was clearly in the seats. So no interference on the fan is going to be ruled. But Moises Alou jumped and reached his glove into the seats and looked like he might catch that ball. But a fan reached up and took it right out of his glove. And I don't remember anger in that moment. What I remember is like a vacuum sucking all of the energy and life and noise out of the ballpark for a moment. But then right away, and that didn't score any runs. That was a foul ball. It was just a ball that wasn't caught. But then I remember five or 10 seconds later, almost feeling like it got 20 degrees colder and there was gloom in the air. And it was like every Cub fan turned to the person next to them in that moment and said, oh, there it is. Now I get it. You know, like, like they weren't expecting doom and gloom, but when it hit, it was like, oh, now, how could I not know something was coming? And that's I mean, a very Maple Leaf kind of thing too, right? So um, that's what I remember. The anger came later, minutes later. Um, you know, and, and again, I do not want to vilify Steve Bartman at all. He does not deserve that. But then he was identified and they took him out to protect him. And, and you know, he was... He, he left the stands, right, and went underneath, and yeah. the cameras were on him. 
And if you look at that picture and you've, you've seen it a thousand times more than I have, there are 20 people reaching out, trying to catch the ball. The ball just happened to find him. Um, I felt terribly for him in that moment and every day since. Um, But that was, yeah, if I'm, if I'm thinking about most memorable moments in a ballpark, you might've just hit the two of them, the Bautista home run and, and that game at Wrigley in 2003, even more than, you know, them winning the World Series in 2016, even more than all the stuff I've seen in New York and Boston, which is crazy um, mm. over the years, even more than what I call the David Freeze game, which is probably my favorite game, the St. Louis-Texas World Series, 2011. That was my first World Series. But that moment in 2003 at Wrigley Field is one I'll never forget. You know, it, it, the way you described the feeling of the fans, I think is so spot on for that moment of like, oh, this team, this team is going to do it to me. And it's the same feeling as the Rajay Davis home run in, in, in the 2016 yes. World Series. It's the exact same because I've talked to friends of mine who literally stood up at a party and said, this effing team, this team is going <laughs> to do it for me too. He, my friend threw his hat on the ground and took a walk around the block, you know, but you're there for that game. And you see that vindication. That's so right. it, it, you saw all the generations get paid off when they when right. they came back. The only shame of it is I think the Cubs deserve to win the World Series in their own ballpark. And they didn't win the World Series in their own ballpark, right? It was in Cleveland when that happened. That was game seven and all that. So and again, you're testing my memory uh, a little bit here, but I think Cleveland was up three to one in that in the World Series, were they not? Didn't the Cubs win five, six, and seven? I believe sure so. Um, right Game seven had the rain delay and the Jason Hayward speech, which we didn't learn about till later and all that. But you're right. Rajay Davis um, off uh, a roll to Chapman. Um, just like, are you kidding me? Like, how, how could this happen? But, you know, there is I love sports, but I don't know that there's anything more dramatic or unpredictable than what might happen in a big playoff game in late October. And it could be anybody. It could be Rajay Davis. It could be David Ross. It could be Marco Scudero or Cody Ross, or it's not always the Jose Bautistas. It's not always the Rizzos and the Bryants. And that's one of the cool things about baseball. The guy who's up next is the guy who's up next. And, and, you know, you get into extra innings, the reliever on the mound is, well, he's your seventh guy, but the other six have been used already. So it's the unpredictability about it, which I think is what draws me to college basketball as well. Although I don't do the NCAA tournament, obviously there's a ton of unpredictability there. But that's mm-hmm. what's fun. If we always know who's going to win in advance, what's the fun, you know? Um, just a couple more quickies here for Dan Schulman. You've been so generous with your time. Um, could you give me a baseball broadcaster you admired in your youth and one whose work you admire now? So, I would, you know, I'll, this is not, I'm not going to be the first person to say this, but you turn on a game and listen to Vin Scully and how can you not be mesmerized, right? So, uh, and then having a chance to meet Vin when I started doing um, ESPN games or interleague play started and the Blue Jays were in LA or something like that. Uh, nobody ever before now or in the future will tell a story like Vin Scully. It, it almost doesn't matter what the subject matter was. Nobody will ever tell a story as well as he told a story. So that's one. But I will tell you, you know, when I grew up with baseball, especially being in Canada, we didn't get a ton of games on TV. So it was more radio for me. And it was more Ernie Harwell in Detroit, Jack Buck in St. Louis, Harry Callis in Philadelphia, Tom Cheek, of course, the Hall of Fame voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. Those were the guys I listened to the most. And I had a chance to grow up and work with Tom, and I had a chance to meet Harry Callis and Jack Buck and Ernie Harwell, who were all extremely nice to me. I, I will never Jack Buck. I'm walking down the kind of the, the behind the press box, the narrow hallway at the former Bush stadium. And I see Jack coming towards me and I'm maybe 30, 32 years old. This is the late nineties. And I'm nervous. And I walk up to him and I go, I said, Mr. Buck, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Dan Schulman and I'm here to do the game for ESPN. And I'm a big fan of yours. And he, his hand was still in mine. We're just kind of in an embrace there, a handshake. And all he says is, hmm, a baritone. And I'll never forget that. Those are the first words he said to me. And then we went on and had a very nice chat. But the first words out of his mouth were, a baritone. And, and it was great. And, and I know Joe, his son, obviously very well. We've crossed paths a million times over the years. But I was one of those guys, you know, back in the 80s 
before you could, you know, go on satellite radio and all that, you know, you had a transistor radio or you were in your car and you were turning the knob, trying to find whatever it was, 660 or 880 or, or KMOX. And, you know, living up in Canada, and, and this is no different than in all, a lot of parts of the U.S., during the day you couldn't hear anything. But at night, all of a sudden, these stations miraculously came in. And I'd be driving around, listen to those guys, sit in the driveway, pull over and, and listen to those guys. So those, uh, Vin Scully and those guys I mentioned. Um, in terms of current broadcasters, uh, you have named two of them. Jason Benetti and John Shambi. Chicago fans are immensely lucky to have those two guys calling games for the White Sox uh, and the Cubs. I think they are absolutely fantastic broadcasters. Uh, I know Jason very well. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. He has been stuck mentoring my son a little bit because Jason went to Syracuse and my son went to Syracuse and Ben latched on to Jason and Jason's too nice to kick him to the curb. So he's he's been wonderful. Boog is one of my closest friends and has been for many, many years. Brian Anderson, just up the street from you guys in Milwaukee, is another terrific, terrific broadcaster. I, I mean, as as good as it gets, polished, composed, always has the right phrase, um, that sort of thing. So, I, you know, the more I name, the more I feel bad about those I don't name. But um, those are the those are the first three that uh, jump to mind to me in terms of guys today um, who I who I just love. Best advice you got. And I, I, I'd like to have you think about it in a couple parts. One for mechanically doing the gig, you know, um, and then just in terms of for your overall career. So wherever those take. Okay. So, so micro first, mechanically doing the gig. Um, I don't remember who told me, but sometimes less is more. Sometimes the best thing you can say is nothing at all. Um, now, I, I don't know that I'm great at that, but I try to be cognizant of it. If, it could be a Blue Jays game in Toronto. It could be a Carolina Duke game. If some big moment is going to happen or does happen in favor of the home team, the, the only thing I might say is on talk back to the producer and I'll say, if Gosman strikes him out here, I'm not saying a word, walk him off. And I might just let the crowd, you know, in the shots, walk him off for 10 seconds. It doesn't work if he does that on the road because there's no noise in the stadium. But if it's a home game or if Carolina's playing Duke at Duke, and Duke goes on a run and Carolina calls a timeout, I might say, I'm out. And, and the producer knows what that means. Take the pictures to break. That's one of them. The other one is uh, one of my many former bosses. Uh, he's still at ESPN. He's just not currently my boss. Mike McQuaid at ESPN said to me one time, when the big moment is, is upon you, lock it in. Like nothing else matters. That's not the time to tell the cute story or to tell us what you know, or to force in the fact, lock it in on the big moment, because that's the moment that's going to live forever and is going to be replayed forever. Don't let anything get in the way of the big moment. And though those were two great pieces of advice I got. In terms of my career, uh, two things as well. One is, if you're not prepared to work, go do something else. Um, if you want to get into this to be rich and famous, go do something else. This is a lot of work. It's fun work, but it's a lot of work. You know, you make personal sacrifices. You travel. You're away from your family a lot. You work crazy hours, um, all that kind of stuff. So, but um, you can you can tell the guys who are working and the guys who are not preparing very much. So put the prep in. Um, you owe it to your audience. And the other thing is just like whatever sport it is you're covering on the field or the, or the ice or the court, uh, this, uh, doing games on TV is a team sport. Um, getting back to the point guard thing. I'm, I'm part of a team. I've got an analyst and a reporter and a statistician and an audio person and a producer and a director and a graphics and, and video um, you know, tape people who are putting replays on. They all deserve to be appreciated. They all deserve to be treated well. Uh, it's, it's about us doing a good show or getting a win. It's not about me having a good game. It's about us having a good show. And that's something I've always tried to keep in mind. Great stuff. Dan Shulman, thank you so much for the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy for you. I don't, I don't even know you other than this, but I'm happy for you personally that you get to be in Toronto and do it that way after getting the, the national taste. It feels like you made those decisions for your life and your happiness. So mm -hmm. I, I hope it's gratifying uh, to you. It's all going great. Again, I've been lucky on so many fronts. I, I wouldn't change a thing. 
Um, you know, still get the national, uh, still get to scratch the national itch with college basketball in the winter, which is wonderful. Um, yeah. But get to, you know, go to my home ballpark and, and sleep in my own bed a little bit more now during the, the spring and summer, which is great too. So pleasure being with you and uh, appreciate all your kind words. The great Dan Shulman loved him talking about the broadcasters that he loved. Jack Buck, mm, a baritone. And this quote, no one will ever tell a story as well as Vin Scully told a story. Amen to that. More on that in a minute. Uh, but a couple things to follow up on. Dan choosing local. He abdicates the game of the week and the World Series on the radio and any national baseball to be the homegrown kid doing the games of the team he grew up watching. Amazing. That's a life-affirming choice to me. Kind of like a college football coach who continuously spurns the offers from the NFL. Situation matters even more so as we get older. Plus, he gets to live the baseball life of an embedded journalist, knowing more than anyone about one team, being able to dig deeper any given day in the clubhouse or on the field or on the plane or at the hotel. And then in terms of his process, how about the specifics of those websites? What he looks at during the game, incredibly useful to me and maybe to you. Last week, Tom Hamilton of the Guardians told us about how he still does it. His binders for the Cleveland team and the note cards he has for each player. It works for him, as all his listeners and fans can attest. But here's Dan Schulman feeling the sport changing, sees opportunities to enrich the broadcasts, and he evolved. He's a math guy, remember. How would an actuarial scientist approach the job? Now when he does a game, he's got six different pages open, has adjusted to the point that he doesn't even use a pen while doing a basketball game, doesn't count pitches doing a baseball game. Why do what the computers do so easily for you now? Eliminate the busy work. The multitasking and the varied information streams are overwhelming enough when utilized correctly, but man, it's invigorating. Just to be an impassioned vessel for information, taking it all in and spitting it out in a comfortable way. I feel it when I'm doing a talk show and I do it that way, but doing a game, I'm still way too nervous to be hopping around the laptop. Maybe I'll get there. Dan Shulman wants to do a broadcast that his late father would enjoy while also doing one his mid-twenties son would enjoy. That sounds perfect to me. So, no one will ever tell a story as well as Vin Scully told a story. Imagine following Vin. Joe Davis chooses to honor Vin Scully as a storyteller as he does Dodgers games these days. And I learned a lot talking to Joe. A great conversation you're going to hear on next week's show. He will join us in the week he gets to do his second ever MLB All-Star game. I was blown away by this man's passion and curiosity for what he does. His ability to self-evaluate while staying calm in big roles. Wow. Seek it out next week. My producer is Ryan Porth. My collaborator is James Vickery. The theme music comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. Find the PBP Voices of Baseball on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. The PBP Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game. 